Hey there, folks. I want to tell you about a new podcast that's coming out. It's called Shut Up and Dribble. You know, the phrase shut up and dribble became a cultural phenomenon. It's ironic in a way that it became a rallying cry for all athletes, not just basketball, to do the opposite, to not just shut up and dribble. Anyways, the show is about the intersection between basketball, society, business, and pop culture. It's more than the schemes, stats, X's and O's. And some of the big questions talked about will be how is the NBA addressing current social and political issues as an organization? And why are the ratings in decline? And what does it mean to be an activist athlete in today's climate? These are just some of the big ideas talked about in this show, and it's hosted by Jeffrey Lin. And Jeffrey is a big basketball fan, but he's also very attuned to what's going on in the world. So the show is coming out soon from Fungen Productions on October 7th in all podcast platforms. Pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, search Shut Up and Dribble. The following pod contains spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, listener. I want to tell you about this new and exciting app we're on. It's called Shuffle. Shuffle allows you, the listener, to not just listen to our episodes, but also allows you to edit and snip audio clips, add visual elements, react, even share in your socials of specific moments of each episode. One of the reasons why I love Shuffle is that it's focused on the community aspect for podcast lovers. Because, you know, sometimes listening to an episode can feel a little bit lonely. Let's say you're working near a colleague or commuting on public transportation and you've got your AirPods on and you hear something funny or interesting from your podcast and you're smiling and you're giggling by yourself. All of a sudden you start getting strange looks from everyone. Person next to you gets up and sits somewhere else. And now everyone on the train thinks you're crazy. Well, guess what? You're no longer alone because with the Shuffle app, you can react and enjoy those moments with other listeners. We have a new community chat out there for all you fans who love AAPI cinema. You can chat with other fans, ask us questions, get film recommendations, or even recommend us films. Right now, we have a special offer for you. Shuffle is offering to sponsor 10 of our fans their first month on our Patreon. All you have to do is download the Shuffle app, join the Real Asian Podcast community chat, sign up for our Patreon, and we'll take care of the rest. We'll select 10 random people to sponsor their first month. That's right. We're so confident you'll enjoy the app and our content that we'll take care of the first month. So to join the community today, go to realasianpodcast.com slash shuffle. Again, super easy to remember, realasianpodcast.com slash shuffle. Hey, Alan, can I uh, tell you a little secret? I love secrets. And this stays just between you and me. No one else in the world is going to know this, right? Not even our listeners. Yeah. Okay. So I've been going through Instagram and I'm not really excited at some of the content that I see. You know, I, I feel like some of the Asian content that I see doesn't really speak to me. Uh, you know, I hear that a lot, but let me tell you something. There's a solution for you. It's called the Universal Asian. Universal Asian? Tell me more. Yeah, you know, they have a lot of great articles about Asian culture, prose, poetry, and I'll tell you what, they have really beautiful photos. Does this place have a community? Because I love poetry, friends that know me, I'm a huge poet, and oftentimes they don't know it. Yeah, Raymond, that's actually a really good point. They have a lot of writing articles, poetry, prose, photos, art, and video of a variety of topics. And the best part about it, nothing is off limits. You could talk about anything on there. Wow, really? So I can like just share my whole story and I can read other people's story on there? Absolutely. They, ha- I mean, there's a huge community. Just join the Universal Asian community today and you can have access to all these amazing content of fabulous artists, writers, authors, everything. This sounds amazing. What's the website called? It's called theuniversalasian.com. Oh, yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Lauren. Raymond and Alan are the funniest people I know, whether it's singing WAP at the top of their lungs, in the car on the way to a mountaineering adventure, or forcing me to eat Korean barbecue when it's 109 outside. I absolutely adore them, and they are just so awesome. Enjoy the show. (laughs) Do you remember that? We we went to Google at Korean barbecue when it was seriously super hot outside what trip did we finish lauren thank you very much for that message uh, I, I guess i'll see you on tuesday when we go climbing but <laughs> where did we come back from um 
Well, it had to be. I remember it was Sacramento. It was at that Korean barbecue spot in Sacramento. Uh, Sacramento, but I do not remember what trip that we were coming back from. It may. I think it might have been the um, the last backpacking trip that we did. It might have been the Palisades. Yeah, the Palisades. Because I think we rode. There was other people, but we rode together. Or no, we didn't ride together. But then we met at the Korean barbecue spot, and it was like a hundred degrees in Sacramento. We're like, yeah, let's get uh, Korean barbecue. <laughs> I remember now. I was eating so much. All right, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Real Asian Podcast. I am Ray, and I'm joined today with Alan. What's up, Alan? It's just us two. What's up, Ray? Good to see you again. Happy to discuss today's film. Today's film, we are going to talk about Slumdog Millionaire. I want to start off by saying one of the things that we kind of thought about when we were thinking about doing this movie is kind of like, why Why do we want to talk about this movie? I do want to address the elephant in the room that neither Alan and I are South Asian, correct? Last time I checked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one one of the, the grounding factors for me was we're a movie discussion podcast, keyword being discussion. And so I don't, I, we don't claim that we speak from a place that we know everything about India, nor are we attempting to with this single episode. I mean, India is a rich and rich historical culture. And this movie received so much critical acclaim, but also a lot of disparagement from all over, from scholars, educators, film critics, um, Indian diaspora people, everyone. So I think I just wanted to take this opportunity to really educate myself a little and hopefully our listeners as well. Yeah. And, you know, the reason why I wanted to talk about this movie too, and I, I really wanted to sign up for this was because I'd watched this film first when I got into college in 2008. And I remember it was a really big film at the time. Everyone loved it. And then now that I have uh, a lot of friends who are of Indian descent and are from India, I've had a chance to talk to them about the film when I signed up for it, asked about their depictions, or asked about the depictions of the film and their reactions to it and how life was for them. Uh, when they were in India, and just try to understand them more and understand how this film fits into the broader context of the Indian experience, whether they're Indian American, uh, whether they're Indian themselves, uh, or, or, or not Indian American, or, or just what their general thoughts were, so, just so I can educate myself more on their experiences, so I can at least come from a less ignorant position while rewatching the film now that I'm in my 30s, as opposed to first year in my undergrad. So, Alan, why don't you just take us through your opener for the movie? For those of you who have not watched, I'd be surprised. Slumdog Millionaire is a story about Jamal and you know, his journey through destiny and fate. We follow him from the slums of Mumbai to a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You know, on the surface, the showrunners wonder, you know, how, how the hell could this poor kid know all these answers to these significantly different questions? You know, we join Jamal as he retells his story, piecing together the puzzle for viewers to understand how the hell Jamal knows all these answers. You know, but we're ultimately wondering, why is Jamal on this game show anyways? You know, as the <laughs> film states, you know, it is written, written that Jamal and Latika were meant to be. Everything else was just a vehicle for them to be together. You know, Raymond, on my second rewatch, now that I'm an adult, I, I mentioned this earlier, I know this film seems to show this huge imbalance of what I call benefit and detriment. There's uh, the worth of this imbalance is sort of the central narrative of the film. Apparently, it was destiny that Jamal would win Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and subsequently find riches in, you know, in monetary value and then also in love. You know, and anything that leads to that destiny, as this film would tell you, implies that it's justified. And I don't like that theme as an adult. You know, it, you know, you, whether you jump into a pool of feces, his brother betraying him, helping him, saving him, or Jamal being beaten by police officers and his mother being mur murdered. Like this film makes you believe that in the end, all these acts were just a fate. And the problem that I have with this film, now that I'm rewatching it, that there's this imbalance between good and bad in this story and how the film tends to place this enormous value on the present day over the hardships and struggles in the past. And there's this last thought here. There's a sinister theme that the ends always justifies the means. 
why worry about murders, uh, maimings of children, betrayals, so long as the guy ends up with the girl? Mm. And ultimately, rewatching this film in 2021 lens, it has kind of made me question some of the larger overarching themes of the film than when I first watched it in 2008 in college. I, I still think uh, Dev Patel is amazing and beautiful, though. So I actually did not see Slumdog Millionaire when it first came out. I definitely heard about it. <laughs> I know. I definitely heard about it. And I remember friends talking about it, but I just never got, got around to watching it. When I first heard about it, I was thinking like, Slumdog Millionaire, is that kind of like who wants to be a, mil- uh, who wants to be a millionaire, the game show? And that was because during this time, 2008, is when like that show was super popular. Remember, I do remember it won many Academy Awards, but that was just about the only presumption I knew about it had uh, when I was going into watching this film for this episode. So honestly, from a purely just a movie standpoint, I'm, I'm not quite sure why it won so many Oscars. I think it was a good film. Don't get me wrong. Objectively, just as like a like a piece of art or a film from a from a cinema pr- perspective, but just surprised at how much praise it received at the time. I think it won eight out of 10 Academy or eight out of 10 Oscars. And I would assume it's because it told a story about hope, rags to riches, triumph, right? Um, like you said, it, it, it pits Jamal into these horrible, horrible situations, but we hope, constantly hope, and it flashes forward into present day when he's on the game show that he like knows all these answers. And based on those experiences that he had, it allows him to progress in the game show. So we're all kind of like rooting for him, like, yeah, this is his redemption story, right? Um, I do agree with the critics of the movie that Danny Boyle's film is more about India from a white man's perspective, less so than an Indian film. But let's let's agree that India does have its own powerhouse film industry in Bollywood. Yet there is always something about Western centralization where Western awards like the Academy um, Awards and even like the Golden Globes Awards tend to be Western centric. That kind of validation is always sought after, whether directly or indirectly. And there's this concept of white saviorism that I kind of pulled apart from it. But I was, all, I was also thinking, I'm looking at it from a 2021 lens, having more exposure and having being a little bit more educated about the structural, you know, the, the white supremacist structures. And I want to get to all into that right now. But but that does play into this movie uh, in a little bit, especially in the film industry. So that is kind of what I took out of it. It was interesting that we watched it from two different lens. You saw it back then, and then you watching it now. I'm, I am curious, though, back then, did you think it was a pretty good movie? Like, what was your take on it? Yeah, uh, first, I just want to acknowledge that you're right. There's a lot to unpack. And having classmates who are from India, different parts of India, it's so fucking diverse and culturally diverse language what everything so i just want to acknowledge that um yeah the first time i watched it in college uh, honestly i i wasn't aware or cognizant of these themes now that i'm on my 30s but i thought it was i thought it was a good film it had these themes of a man using the awfulness of his past in order to allow him to realize riches, love, and and monetary value. And there was like a, a, a great Bollywood dance at the end there that I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, in the train station. <laughs> I, I, did, I did kind of feel that was a little strange. I mean, I think that's not strange from like, a, oh, that, that dance is strange. I think it was strange of, of Danny putting that into the movie. Yeah. It's funny because as when I watched it when I was in 2008, I was like, wow. Because remember, flash mobs were a thing back in the late 2000s, early right. 2010s, right? It was like it that felt damn, pandery. It was very pandering. That's what I thought about it. And now that I've watched it again, I thought, holy fuck. Like, it really goes into what I talked about earlier in the themes of good versus uh, or benefit and detriment, where like you have all these terrible things that happen. But don't don't worry about it. There's a dance sequence at the end. And right. it kind of tried to like shield our eyes from what this movie was portraying as some heroic or horrifying themes that happened in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, different as I watched it again. And it's very, it's a, it highlights a very complicated issues in terms of like 
the slums or the poverty that is portrayed. But but I think, you know, it would be remiss to think that it doesn't exist because it does exist and it did ex- exist at the time in India. But um, I think the politics of actual of the slums, very complicated. And I personally would not be in a position to be like, oh, this is the solution. And this is what we need to do about it. I mean, in some of the research that I have done preparing for this movie, there have been many academics and scholars who try to connect the two um, and social activists who had a problem of how the slums were portrayed. But then they wanted to talk about, well, what's the real issue here? Because one thing to portray the slums, it's another thing to actually fix, you know, or not fix, right? Because I, I want to be careful not making it seem like the slums is like the worst place in the world because there's a lot of, there's people that live here and there's businesses that exist in the slums. I think it's just how it's characterized uh, from, again, from a Western perspective can be very, very, very tricky. I do want to talk about just moments in the in the movie, in the movie itself, memorable scenes. The, yeah, the part where the kid has to like jump into the feces just yeah. to be able to meet his hero and then I wasn't sure if he was actually going to get the autograph because he smelled like poo. But I was, I was like, oh, that's very sweet that he was still able to, <laughs> he was still able to <laughs> sign the autograph even though this kid's covered in poo poo. Man, my memorable scene was, um, it's either one of two, but the first one was when um, Jamal and Salim they were being held captive by the thug who was who had just uh, where Salim had just noticed uh, a boy being. Um, yeah, yeah. Basically, blinded, maimed, maimed, um, and then you know, throughout the film, we see like these, like you know, brotherly banter between the two, where they like shit on each other, kind of stuff. But then this is where Salim like actually took into his hands to save his brother. That was a very memorable scene because through the film, you kind of like think that there's a bad vibe, and that you think Salim would go ahead and give his brother up, but then he did it and he saved them. And then that just heartbreaking scene where they're where they hopped on the train and then Latika's left behind and oh yeah your heart breaks because you don't know what's going to happen to her and i remember rewatching that again and i thought i know she's gonna it's quote unquote it's gonna be okay but holy fuck that was terrifying to watch again just unsure what's gonna happen to her and you're like no yeah love. <laughs> and then the second scene it's whether it's either at the end when you know he uh, he uses his last lifeline, and then you know his brother doesn't pick up, and then you oh, contrast yeah. that with his brother dying. But then Latika picks up, and then you I was see like, the- "You forgot the phone, no!" I know it was so, it was like you know just so many conflicting feelings. I remember watching that again. I was like, "God, man, this is and like Danny Boyle for all the flaws that he has putting this movie together." I will say that directionally or as a director, I thought the way that he mashed those films together of his brother being murdered and then. Um, Jamal finding Latika again. I thought that was, um, God, it was, it was conflicting in my heart, but it was great, great scene. I think the only thing that I kind of got lost or didn't really quite get the connection was the fallout between Jamal and his, and his brother Salim. I know they were staying in an apartment and Salim basically kicked out Jamal. Um, I may have missed a detail or something like that, but I, I was kind of watching and I was like, what, where, where was the connection between them really just becoming so far apart? Because they grew up together, right? They, they were, there was just them two. And it was just like this blood bond that they had of like having each other's back. And then all of a sudden, as they became teenagers or maybe young adults, they just kind of had like this huge falling out. And then you have Salim kind of going into the world of crime and then Jamal kind of going as like a telemarketer or customer call center agent and stuff like that. Working as the coffee guy or tea guy for them. Yeah, working as a tea guy kind of. The, so I, I didn't quite see the the moment. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong too. It, the moment where they kind of like all of a sudden just split apart. I think the paradigm shift happened when Salim, um, after he had, they had murdered, or I should say justifiably murdered the, I forget the, guy's name the 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 man who was maiming children after they murdered him and they found the hotel together i think salim had gotten drunk and then met with another crime lord and then found a way to associate and attribute himself to that crime lord that salim had thought was justified Mm. because that other crime lord was against uh the mob who was maiming children you know that you may remember the the phrase the enemy of my enemy is my friend right and so that's when salim kind of turned to that 
second world of crime, and then that caused that divergence between the two brothers. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I probably just completely missed that. But that 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 was the thing. Was kind of like wait. All of a sudden, they meet at the in the empty construction building or at the top, and he's like, "I'll never forgive you." And, and they punches him <laughs> for a second. I thought he, and then he pushes him. I thought I was like, "No way!" That this is the end of the movie where he like tackles him off the building, and they both die. <laughs> yeah, I when I first watched, that, I was like, "Wow, that's it!" And I was like, "Oh, he was imagining it." What about the scene where the game show host supposedly, again, from my perspective? Even when he was giving him the answers, thought we thought that we was he was giving Jamal the answer. I, I was like, I don't know. Do you trust this guy? Like, is he giving you the right answer? Like, oh my god, what would you have done in that situation? It's it's the um, it's the paradox. I think it's like the horse and the car show paradox, where you have three doors, you eliminate one. Do you change your answer? And the answer is always yes because you improve your percentages. It's something like that. If the host has given you the answer to something, you just automatically do not trust them because they're in the benefit of of the producers of the game show. So I would never go with what, unless they say something like, "Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Is it Peyton Manning or Tom Brady?" And then the game show host says, "Tom Brady." Peyton Manning. Oh, how dare you? Then I would say, <laughs> "Okay, I agree with you, sir. It's Tom Brady." <laughs> My question back to you, though, Raymond, like. Um, in regards to the film, before we dive into the larger topics, um, you know, what do you think of the opening scenes when you see Jamal being tortured kind of right away, and then it contrasts to him being on a game show? Like, what were your thoughts on that? I think at that moment, my thoughts were like, okay, this game show is a ruse that is like supported by a crime syndicate or something like that. Mm-hmm. That there's some kind, some kind of sinister conspiracy thing going on that is pitted against Jamal. You know, to to go even deeper than that, it's like, oh, that maybe they're the film is trying to say, no matter how much knowledge you have, you may have the right answers in this arena of a game show to become rich, because Jamal is this nobody essentially, they're trying everything they can to like prevent him from crossing over into that next mm. like system. That's what I thought about it. But then like him being electrocuted by the battery. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I guess he dies. And this is right in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a flashback or something. Yeah, I first watched that. I thought it was one of those films um, at, where he's dying and then like everything portrayed in the movie is like his hopes and dreams and wishes. I thought it was going to be like that, similar to how Danny Boyle like tends to like have those type of movies. I, I just think back to like 28 days later because he also directed that film too where it's just like there's yeah. like a big twist at the end or something. I don't know. Okay, let's go into just the controversies because I think I've been wanting to talk about this. So uh, the first thing I want to address is the title. I know that is a, a point of contention. Uh, the title, Slumdog Millionaire. So people say it's a disparaging title because it insinuates dog as in like lower than mm-hmm. Danny Boyle and then other other people defenders of the title not necessarily the movie itself said that it's more of a play on words slumdog as in underdog jamal's character who who is from the slums and he's on the game show so i that was a something that i just wanted to address and, and point out i do see how it could be misconstrued i don't know what your thoughts are but my first thought just to be quite honest was that it went to the play on words like underdog slumdog millionaire that's what my thought my brain went into i think the controversies are not merited mm-hmm. here's what i mean like it's a pl- it's a play on words and it's the same thing as someone taking issues with the movie title the last black man in san francisco mm-hmm. it's similar to that it's like this is a movie title that has a play on word there's two con- two contrasting figures here slumdog implying something and then millionaire implying something else that's contra uh, that's uh a, a counter to the other. The movie title in and of itself is just meant to show the dualities between benefit and detriment, as I mentioned earlier, and the film kind of brings you through that journey. I don't think the controversy or the issues are merited or warranted, to be completely honest. I think it's just a way for people to nitpick because, it, as we said earlier, India is so diverse, and I, I really do think that there are other issues in the film that deserve more energy rather than the title itself. Speaking of which, 
issues with the the filmmaker Danny Boyle being of British descent or a British person, white man person. So there's this aspect of colonialism where it is merited, I think, because look, if this same exact movie was made by an Indian director or anyone else, non-Western, it would not have received the same amount of accolades or reception. But because it was made by uh, a British director, a Hollywood director, whatever the case may be, it received recognition. And it received the type of recognition to say, look, look at this portrayal of brown people of India, where uh, we, we as white people are saying, we understand the poverty that's being put in India. And we feel good about ourselves that we're making a movie that's going to portray that. That's kind of like the main issue. And I, and I do agree with that. I think at the time, probably, you know, it, I think if I'm trying to take my mind back into 2008, my initial, my instinct would have been like, oh, it's great to see representation being recognized by the Academy of uh, the Oscars. But obviously, there's like deeper, more issues and questions that kind of go along with that. It's weird to think about it because you're right. For so many uh, minority, I shouldn't even say minorities, but for non-white people, we tend to think of the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, typically historically white, uh, predominantly white award shows um, as the ultimate achievement for yourself. So in 2008, I saw this film come out by a white director. I thought, wow, finally, white America or Hollywood is paying attention to some uh, to uh, folks other than themselves, and this film want accolades for it. And I thought to myself, "Geez, this is a way for uh, this is progress. This is yeah. progress, right?" And but then now that now that what's older is different. It is kind of progress. I mean, I don't I don't want to deny the fact that portrayal, like d- at, during that time, yes, it, it was progress. It was a sign of progress, right? It to to even just have. Indian actors on screen be celebrated, but obviously things have changed from then. Yeah, I, I just don't. I mean, like I I get it. Representation is important, and it's not perfect. But I don't try to let good be the what was it. I don't want good to be the enemy of perfect. There's not. There's no perfect. Representation matters, and I think so long as there's some type of representation. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I mean, any representation is good representation. Actually, I take that back. Not all representation is good representation. Good representation is good representation. <laughs> good representation <laughs> is great representation. Great representation. Self-reinforcing cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I got you, though. I got you. I do can't help but kind of think about it if I was to tie it from a from a reference point that was more relatable to us as Chinese and Vietnamese Americans, or more so Chinese, is is Mulan, right? Mulan, yeah. As as treasured as the original animated classic is for us, it it, it is behind like the production and the directors behind you know white people. Now it does star people of color. And even does have some writers who have uh, who are people of color as well with Rita. But I I I, I say Mulan is more a, a movie about China versus like a Chinese film, and that's kind of like the same uh, lens that I put with Slumdog Millionaire. This is Danny Boyle's perspective. You're referring to the new Mulan, right? Both. I mean, the new oh. Mulan is even worse. But even I with agree. the animated classic, right? Even with the animated classic, directors Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook, right? It's not made by Asian people. It's it's yep. Disney's fascination and exploration of a Chinese tale. Danny Boyle kind of does the same thing. He was curious about India, and he was like, "How do I? I'm a filmmaker. How do I learn more about India? Oh, I'll just make a movie about it." And it's told from a very specific perspective. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's just about India, but I would not say this is an Indian film, and that's the distinction that I make of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think one thing people tend in today's day and age, I found that there's a common theme between accurate representation. So there tends to be this idea that if you're not of said background, you cannot make film of that background. And I don't necessarily agree with that because that means that 
no one can make anything ever. Exactly. It, it bleeds into <laughs> all aspects of our lives. So I've, I remember when there was a controversy about a young girl who was wearing a cheap how for a prom dress. And, mm. and I remember there was controversy about how us East Asian folks were upset because she's wearing a cheap how when she's not of Chinese descent. And I thought to myself, is this not her way of celebrating our culture yeah. by wearing it? Um, and then there was some controversy about her like doing like a, a bowing pose, etc. But like in reality, they're doing like a thug life pose with her friends. So I just thought like, does this imply that in the future, from this point forward, that we're not allowed to celebrate in other cultures? Or if so, like, how do we do it respectfully? And are we not allowed to take or be creative about other uh, cultures and make films about them or at least take make an attempt to learn about those other cultures before making a film about it so i would argue that at least danny boyle had um, although he is a white director he did consult himself or surround himself with folks from india in order to make a somewhat accurate depiction uh, depiction of some aspect of india not the entire representation of india and I, I at least have to recognize that that he wasn't just like a white man just saying, I think this is what India is about, and I'm going to make a film based off of what I think I think India is. Um, there's a critic and author, Salman Rushdie, pretty famous author. He, he argued against that this movie was lauded as like, oh, it, it's, it's realistic. It per, um, paints realism of the slums in India. And he, but he was highly critical of it because he did say, well, Danny Boyle had never visited India before making this film. And he, he said, imagine if an in Indian director went to New York or Los Angeles or any major U.S. city or London, I, mean, I guess London, but basically any major Western city who had never been there before and then made a movie about their perspective on it, it, it would, it would be shredded apart. And he said that there's the, there's this idea of like double standards where it's okay when Western first world societies make movies or have representation of the the flaws of third world countries but it doesn't work the other way around and i was like mm, that's an interesting take on it i think that's fair but you know this brings me back to why i mean i don't want to toot our own horn here but doesn't this kind of reinforce why we need this podcast though mm -hmm. because this film for all its flaws is exactly it, it portrays how humans learn in such a particular and a peculiar way you know rather than experiencing the culture of said country of a film that you're watching we uh, everyone else we fall into the trap of how film gives rise to culture and how culture gives rise to film like we'll watch a f like folks will watch slumdog millionaire and then automatically think oh that's what india is about or mm. folks will watch a movie about like skid row la and think oh my god that's all la is it's right interesting because we use this podcast to pick apart these stereotypes and give color to a lot of the information that's not typically portrayed in films because in reality a lot of humans we tend to just watch a film and think to ourselves incorrectly so that that's what that entire region is all about and it's it's why this podcast is so important because we can discuss about these films and provide nuance and context to something that's typically 2d there was an indian filmmaker uh sudhir mishra he was on this panel and he basically said it's a positive in this in the fact that it generated interest to from uh, it generated interest in, of india from from the western world this movie yes it won all these awards whether they were deserved or not that's up for debate but at the end of the day it it caused a lot of people to take notice that oh there's a reality somewhat of a reality a mm. reality in india particularly in the slums, that me as a Westerner, American, a British person, whoever, I need to take notice that there is a world outside of my own, mm -hmm. you know, and then there's like a fork in the road for, for most people, whether they take this movie and think this is exact, this is everything India, some dog millionaire, that's all I know, kids stripping cars, I never want to go there again, kind of thing. But then on the other side of it, there's, there's those who see this and be like, I maybe I come from a place of poverty. Maybe I come from a reality that is harsh in, in from where I come from, and I'm seeing this paralleled in this movie across the across the globe. And now I want to learn more, and I have a little bit more compassion with 
you know, other aspects and, and wanting to learn more of like the structural systems that take place that breed poverty in certain societies and, and communities. Um, and I think that's how I take this film as, is that it's more of a question, not an answer. It's just tough. There, life is not black and white. It's so nuanced. And this film, although like some folks will look at it and say, how dare you do like make a one dimensional uh, portrayal of India? And that's, that's fair because some folks, as we mentioned earlier, look at a film and say, that's all that location is about. Other folks will look at this film and say, gosh, that's a harsh reality that I never really kind of knew existed or knew existed, but hasn't been put on film for me to just see firsthand. And I want to learn more about it. So there's always two camps to the story. And how do folks unpack that? You know, I would prefer folks educate themselves a bit more and to try to bring more equitable opportunities for folks around the world rather than just look at a film and say this is all that area is about yeah and i'll i'll speak for myself and sort of toot my own horn too but like i heard about this movie i didn't watch it i didn't watch it at that time now having seen it and doing more research on it i i'm curious now i want to watch other bollywood movies i want to watch other indian made films there was a film uh in made in 1992 called daughter v um, made by the filmmaker I mentioned before, Sudhir Mishrao, he talked about it, where it's essentially the same thing. It takes place in the slums in Mumbai. And he said he didn't get the same recognition that the Western world gave Slumdog. So, but when he mentioned that, I was like, well, now I want to watch that movie because I want to see. He's like, because obviously it's told from an Indian perspective and someone who has a strong reference point of that world. So for me, like I'm just a single use case, but on the on the bigger stage, yes, I understand. Some people see some dog just because it received uh, critical acclaim, and they're like, okay, well, I've I've had my checkbox. You know, I've seen Indian movies. Like, oh yeah, I love Bollywood. I love Indian culture. I've seen I've seen Some Dog Millionaire. Right? If if there's people out there that say that, and you're like, oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, that's like when someone says, I love Mexican food. Taco Bell is amazing. That's really like. <laughs> Oh, shut the fuck up. What was that? Someone said like, oh, I, Asian, there's Asian representation. There's Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. Yeah, that's why I say <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> exactly. Even Amir Khan, who's one of the most celebrated Indian actors all over the world. He's a philanthropist. He's a big celebrity. He could see why Slumdog was liked by many people. And he's a fan of Danny Boyle. But he, he says it with a caveat. It's not an authentic perspective. It's weird hearing the kids speak English and even Jamal's character all of a sudden speaking with like a slightly British English <laughs> all of a sudden like these these things these like nuances these little t details that sep that take him out of the world that Danny Boyle is trying to portray we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break and we'll be right back Annie's Tea Cakes is an Oakland-based food company on a mission to provide plant-based Chinese food options to the world. Wow! As a longtime plant-based eater, Annie started this business to create a way for herself and others to enjoy the foods that are often shared with family but don't fit a plant-based diet. You know, this journey started with vegan Taiwanese pineapple cakes. That sounds amazing, I'll tell you that right now. Follow Annie's Tea Cakes on Instagram or go to anyteacakes.com to place your order today. Hey friends, for those that really know me, know that I love picnics. But not just any picnic, I'm talking all out fancy, make other picnics around, jealous kind of picnics. However, it does take a lot of time and effort to put these picnics together, and for some reason, none of my friends ever want to help out. Gosh. That's why I go to Experiences by K. Experiences by K is a Bay Area luxury picnic business that can be set up just about anywhere from the beach, park, your backyard, and more. Simply go to the website, book your picnic, show up, and enjoy good times with your friends, worry-free. Great for birthdays, anniversaries, proposals, you name it. Go to experiencesbyk.com right now for your upcoming occasion and check out Experiences by K on Instagram at experiencesbyk. 
And now, back to the show. I want to talk a little bit about poverty porn. (laughs) I was also kind of like, that's an interesting way of saying it and looking up what this poverty porn mean. I mean, I got a sense of what it meant by just the name, but it's basically, it's defined as the exploitation of the poor's condition in order to generate the necessary sympathy for selling newspapers, increasing charitable donations, or support for a given cause. You know, that was one of the characteristics of, well, that was one of the characterizations of this film is that it puts, it trying to paints like the poor is like, oh, we feel sorry for these, for these slums, for these people. It's very similar to, remember those commercials we used to see late life television where uh, you hear the song, in the arms yeah. of an angel. And they show like kids in Africa. Yeah. yeah. I'll be honest. I'm like, let me just change the channel. I don't want to feel <laughs> bad right now. <laughs> it, it's, it's this uh, philosophical idea that, you know, if you're far away and distance from a certain cause, you yes. feel further away from having to help. And so this film. Mm, so relatable to today. It's so yeah, right, right. I mean, it tries to bring, this film tries to bring, um, levity and relevancy to certain issues in India and then by packaging it in a film that has good aspects that you enjoy, a game show that you that westerns are familiar with and then the some realities of certain portions of slums in India, it tries to bring you closer to these harsh realities so that hopefully you can care about it. But of course like there's poverty porn and that there is some exploitation in um in some of these poor areas in India. But the question remains, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise a controversial topic here. Is poverty porn a bad thing? I'm asking you. Oh, you put it on me. Um... Because ultimately, if it brings awareness to the issue and then it raises money to it. Yeah, I was, I was kind of heading down that path too. Like awareness. People equate awareness with activism and put it on the same scale. I think, I think awareness is one component of activism. If anything, it's like step one. You have to be aware of a problem. But if you don't do anything about the problem, what good are you, in a sense? And so if poverty porn... um, (laughs) I'm laughing because this is like saying poverty porn. You know what? Actually, funny, real quick tangent. I wanted to Google poverty porn, the concept, but as I was typing it, I was like, I'm really scared of the search results (laughs) that I will get from Google and the algorithm that it will start pushing towards me. (laughs) I was like, let me go on on Wikipedia or something. I know, you're going to get ads now. Uh Uh-oh. I I was just unsure of what kind of search results I was going to get when I was Google searching poverty porn. But to answer your question, my perspective, I think I look at it in a in a way where it is good first step, but not to say in, it's a purely bad thing. I think poverty porn is one way to say this is this is something that you need to be aware of. The name of it could probably do better. Does that make sense? I may just cut all of that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's, yeah, I'm going to cop out on my own question too. But I don't think it's a good nor a bad thing. It's like a in the middle thing because I think poverty porn tends to misrepresent the poor. Because like poverty porn isn't just dirts and rags. It's like, it's not dirts and rags and helplessness. The reality is that there's many facets to to the problem. And like just throwing awareness to it doesn't always mean that it's going to be, that there's going to provide some net positive to the issue. So like constantly, like, like with the arms of the angel commercials, like, yeah, it may have raised awareness to the issues, but again, like people are so far away from it that maybe maybe it doesn't help the issue, but then all it does is that it reinforces certain stereotypes. I, I want to revise what I said. I think the the term itself and the intention of the term is a is a bad thing in terms of like uh, poverty porn and the de- within the definition. I'm looking at the word exploitation, and so. I think that is the the key factor to poverty porn because you want to think about if we are wanting to discuss poverty, we should be talking about poverty. Like that is a whole thing in and of itself. But poverty porn is the exploitation of it. And so if we're talking about the exploitation of it, then I would think it's probably more so a bad thing because now you're 
um, you're not really discussing or debating the issue of poverty. You're just talking about the portrayal of it. And when we're kind of limiting ourselves to just the portrayal of it, whether or not it distorts or glorifies poor people in poor situations all across the, the planet, like it doesn't inherently, I don't think it really does lead into actionable change in, into improving those situations. No, no, I, I absolutely, I think you hit the nail right on the head here. Um, as a photographer, one, one of the criticisms that I've always heard about poverty porn photography is that this picture does not accurately represent the individual in the photo. But then as a photographer, I kind of push back and say, I'm sorry, are these photos staged or fake? Because if they're not, then mm. not, are, are, is accurately portraying folks in poverty, is, is that a, is, is that stripping that individual of their dignity? I don't, I'm not quite sure if it does, because if you're accurately portraying them in a situation that is reality, isn't that the purpose of facing harsh criticism of the world? Because if we just kind of like put rose-colored glasses on everything and say like everything's okay, that doesn't solve the issue. And so I think I should say like poverty porn is is tough. It's not great, but like there, what do we what do we do then? Mm. We have to face harsh reality sometimes, and the harsh reality is that the world is not perfect. And the further we shy away from that, then the worse we we make it. We have to face challenges and sometimes the challenges is confronting uncomfortable situations such as skid row or uh, the, the 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 shitty situation in detroit or some of the homelessness in this area it's not the individual's fault it's a systemic problem and i think if we portray those things then we can start addressing the systemic issues rather than using these photos to highlight the individual who's living in the impoverished state right if this movie came out today now with like social media, it would be just as if I shared how great this movie was and talk about all the the poverty rates and issues in India or just like poverty in general. And all I'm doing is like sharing resources and like talking about it without actually doing some of the work. Now, I don't want to say like you have to go to India and then all of a sudden work on the ground. I mean, if that's something that people want to do, more power to you. But that is kind of like what people in 2008, critics were saying about the Western approach to poverty. You're showing this, you're portraying this situation, but you're reaping the benefits by, at least, you know, specifically with Danny Boyle, you're reaping the benefits by receiving all this recognition. Mm. And mm. you're sitting in your little ivory tower. Ooh, I've made a movie showing the the slums of India, and I want all these awards. But let's talk about the real issue, right? Like, have you? Has Danny Boyle? And I don't know. Has Danny Boyle done more to help with India's poverty issue, or or done his due diligence? I don't know. Does he have to? That's up to him. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of like where the criticism comes in. If you want to take, if you want to reap the benefits from this, from this situation, um, you have to be able to like do the work too. I don't know. I mean, anyone out there wants to message us and say like, Danny Boyle is a philanthropist. He's donated X, Y, and Z to India and he's like single-handedly improved India situation. Then I would be like, well, that's definitely white saviorism right there. But <laughs> but I would be like, okay, well, at least he did something more beyond the film. I just don't know if he did. Yeah, I know I know he set up a trust fund to support the child actors, uh, support them in their education. So I know he's done that. That's confirmed. But outside of that, I'm not 100% sure. But you're right. Because like, what what if it's the case that he did, I don't know, like put a lot of XYZ money towards back in India is, and then it helps certain communities. Do we push back and say that's white savior? Like, why is this man helping these people? It's like, yeah, but he's, he used the proceeds of the film to support the, you know, it's so complicated. It's so complex. Um, and there's no one right answer. Um, didn't something happen to the child, child actors that were in the movie? What happened with them? Yeah, unfortunately, Rubina Ali, she, uh, based off of what I've read, um, even after the film and they paid her, and from my understanding, they were paid significantly less than the children who were uh, in the Kite Runner. Mm -hmm. um, even though they were paid, uh, Rubina, I believe the other children as well, um, they still continue to live in the slum. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the challenges, of course, is if 
if you pay certain child actors a trust fund in order for them to fund for their education, but the harsh reality of them living in the slums means that there's no easy access to education, you're not really solving the problem. You're just right, throwing exactly. money at it without actually helping them. Like, here you go, but walk, turn around, I'm good. Yeah, exactly. It's like saying, oh, I gave you a trust fund, but it's like, I don't have a bank account, or nor do I have access to that. Yeah. Um, but based off of what I've seen recently, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, you know, Rubina, just specifically about her, she played the young Latika. She, um, she is now not living in the slums, and she is uh, once again acting. Uh, but that's that's based off of what I've seen on just doing a Google search to do some deep dives. But someone correct me if I'm wrong. I want to talk about how this movie was supposed to be like this pioneering force that would pave the way for Indian representation in Hollywood. And I think my take on it, looking back to where we are today, I don't think it did that because there were still uh, instances where people were in brownface uh, and Indian actors were stereotyped, uh, Indian characters were stereotyped. They were reduced down to just like their cultures and customs. And, you know, the, the, the stereotypes of them being like IT experts and the stereotypes of them being terrorists post 9-11 still carried on in future films. Uh, and I don't think Slumdog Millionaire, again, when it won all these awards, a lot of Western critics said, we'll see, look how, how this film, look what Danny Boyle did in order to uh, put India and Indian culture on the map. However, the last Indian film was that was featured in the final five in best international feature uh, in the category was Lagan in 2001. And so a lot of people thought this would all of a sudden be, there would be this explosion of Indian representation at the Oscars and the Academy Awards. And not so much because really the only, the last Indian Oscar winner was Slumdog and that was best original song. There hasn't been any real nominations since then. So that just proves like there was still a lot of work to be done after Slum, Slumdog Millionaire. White Hollywood tends to pat themselves on the back a lot and claim that when they've done something that they've reached this huge milestone, they will have a white director portraying a certain film, Mulan, Slumdog Millionaire, or films depicting anyone outside of themselves and use it as a classic case example to say, look, we're diverse. Mm -hmm. Remember we talked about this where um, now the Hollywood, I forget what they've done. They changed the category that in order for you to win Best Picture, it has to meet certain quotas, right? And then, then we discussed, is that racist in and of itself? And the answer, we weren't sure yet because while it provides opportunities for us or uh, underrepresented folks to be present, it also makes it seem as if like we're just a number in a checkbox to white Hollywood. So when they have these type of movies, Slumdog Millionaires, Mulan's, etc., there's two contrasting forces. One is Hollywood uses it as a way to show that they're diverse now, that they're no longer just white focusing or or, and then the other side, of course, is, is that all we are to you is just a way for you to pat yourselves on the back and say that you've done a great job without actually giving us a seat at the table. But this is something that we, not just uh, us at the podcast, but our listeners as well, we need to continuously keep asking ourselves the question and then have these discussions on how do we continue to f continue fighting for um, racial equality? What does that look like in the media? What does that look like in our culture? Because we can't just solve it with a man going on a game show and then using the scarred history of his past to win money and then find his loved one. It's not that simple. And life is not that simple. I can understand the, the real bad taste that Slumdog Millionaire left for many Indians and Indian Americans. And I do want to acknowledge, you know, from our perspective, being Americans and being more familiar with Hollywood-centric films, yes, there's this thirst of American ex uh, acceptance 
or Western acceptance, because we always kind of equate it or relate it back to the Oscars and Academy Awards and the Golden Globes. When, don't get me wrong, many, many Indian films and Bollywood has their own award, you know, has, has their own award shows and accolades that I'm sure many Indian films win. And we would have to do our due diligence in watching those films when we kind of get to it. Now, I wish I was I was able to multiply myself multiple times to watch all these movies at the same time. But I want to ask you, are there any winners that came out of this film in your perspective, whether in the movie, about the movie, who won the film? Going back to what I talked about, about how one's scars helps leads you to your fortunes, um, benefit and detriment. The film makes me pushes me to say that Jamal is the winner because for all the heartaches, the challenges, the terrible situations that happened as he was growing up, ultimately, he was able to stay true to who he was, find the woman he loved, and use the scars of his past to uh, enrich himself on a monetary basis, hopefully to um, to a better life, uh, which it seems the film seems to imply. And so, the film narrative worked on me because for me, I would say the MVP of the film uh, was Jamal in this case. So my winner of this film is the game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I think this movie was just a two-hour commercial of product placement. Because <laughs> like basically it was just... You know, and and the 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 movie came out when the show was really popular, and I was, I was kind of asking myself, why was this show so popular? Mm-hmm. Um, it was popular over here too, and obviously our version, the American version, was the one with Regis Philbin. Uh, Who wants to oh, be a that's millionaire? Right. That's right. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Final answer. Rest in peace, Regis. But you know, I was also thinking, okay, two thousand eight, we were in a global recession. If you remember. There was a housing housing bubble crash. And so this idea of being able to turn your fortunes in, in the flick of a, of a game show, right? Just based on your pure knowledge, answering questions, I think it resonated with a lot of people. I think a lot of people just wanted a feel-good, fairy tale kind of story. Yeah. And so this movie, the game show, was just like a way to generate so much viewership because people wished they were in that seat and of course i was one of those people shouting at the tv be like no it's c you fucking idiot um i actually went after watching the movie i looked up youtube videos of like who wants to be a millionaire winners like there's this compilation (laughs) i was like i kind of i was like this show brought back so many memories i kind of wanted to just see you know uh this compilation of winners and there's this guy who he was on the very last question and he phones a friend. Is that the one where he calls his dad? No, he calls his friend and he's like, hey man, I just wanted to give you a call. I don't really actually need help with the answers. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to be a millionaire. And then the audience is like, whoa! Because <laughs> he was so confident in, in his answer. Yeah, it was pretty badass. It would have been greater if he got the answer wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, no, that's actually Benjamin Franklin? Oh, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the winner for the of the film for me was definitely the show who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah, it's too bad it ended too. There was certainly an explosion of those like um, uh, game show television shows that like the briefcase one. Oh, yeah. Let's make a deal or something like that. Let's make a deal. Yeah, this is a whole shit ton of these like type of shows that popped up because they rode on the coattails of who wants to be a millionaire. They should have a new one now. Who wants to be a billionaire? Yeah, I know, right? Millionaire is like, you could spend a million definitely in two weeks. But a billionaire, <laughs> that's a different one. Yeah, that a billionaire could at least last you for a month. <laughs> the latest iteration, I think, of the show, though, because YouTube was sending me suggestions, was... They were doing celebrities, but celebrities would answer questions and win for their charities or for like yeah, a charity. Yeah, I saw charity. for David Chang, right? Yeah. So he, he won one for a charity. So that's like the latest iteration of the show. But man, and I always loved when people used up like the three lifelines, 
right in the beginning, <laughs> like the first three questions. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to use all my lifelines. Immediately, I'm like, this person has no shot. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> I was like, oh man, this first this person's going down real, real fast. <laughs> oh man, I should probably watch it again. It's been a while. Definitely. Alright. Thank you everyone. Tune in next time for another episode of Real Asian Podcast. Peace. <laughs> hey, if you want to be featured on our show, you can do an intro for us. Just go to realasianpodcast.com slash intro and record your intro. And we'll add it to the beginning of our show so you can hear your own voice.